Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today we are lucky enough to have Liz Bendit with us. Welcome, Liz. Hi. How is life in Leewood, Kansas? It's good. It's good. We're coming to the end of the school year. My kids are totally checked out. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> my, teen, my two teenagers are already planning their, their summer escapades, and uh, um, we're looking forward to it. Nice. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and um, relocated um, a couple times um, growing up. And eventually, after going to graduate school um, and getting my MBA at USC, I was recruited by Hallmark in Kansas City. And my parents had relocated here. And at the time, my mother had breast cancer, and I wanted to be closer to her. So I went from living on the West Coast to the middle of the country, which was quite the culture shock. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met my husband and my mom got better and I, we never thought in a hundred years that I would stay in Kansas, but, um, but we've actually really loved it. Leewood is a suburb of Kansas city, the KC Metro area. And, um, we're, I think that somewhere near the state is like the absolute center of the country. Like we're dead smack in the middle, um, totally landlocked. So I do miss my ocean breezes, Yes, um, but yes, but over the past 20 years, I've had, a really interesting career in um, being marketing with increasingly, you know, more responsible executive roles. And also over the last 10 years, I was lucky enough. And I do think lucky to have gone through four different cancer diagnoses. Um, And it was crazy. Um, You know, everyone asks, did I live under, you know, some big, um, (laughs) I don't know, like radio telescope that, that somehow I got all these radiation vibes through my head or something. I know. <laughs> um, in fact, I even did the genetic testing to see if I was a carrier of all the various, you know, genes that we know about today that um, are markers for hereditary um, cancers. And I have none of them. So I'm just lucky. I did drink a lot of tab in the eighties. So that's my current theory. Um, <laughs> but as a result of all of that uh, cancer experience, I got really good at being a cancer patient and um, and I think I have a different perspective, or at least a unique perspective on how best to handle those diagnoses, come out the other end smiling. And yeah. uh, and then certainly 
um, I did take that passion and the, all of my experience being a patient, receiving a lot of really well-meaning, but kind of useless junk as gifts um, to create a business. And I launched the bombbox.com. That's B-A-L-M, not B-O-M-B. So the bombbox.com. And um, it's growing like crazy. And it's very exciting to kind of merge these two areas of my life, right? This this passion for patient advocacy and um, my marketing entrepreneurship. So tell me a little bit more about your cancer diagnosis. You had four different cancer diagnoses? Yes. Four. So the first one, and, and I think as many moms might say, you know, I date things by the age of my children versus the year. Right. <laughs> uh, so um, if, to give you some perspective, my daughter is currently 16 and my son is 14. So when my daughter was three and my son was one, he was a baby. Um, I was diagnosed with melanoma and it was super, super random. I was um, at the kiddie pool over the summer with my family and my mom. And it was one of those times, you know, when you have a baby and he's just kind of exhausted and he fell asleep on my lap and my chest. And I only say that because I was in a bathing suit and I was kind of wrapped in an awkward position to kind of keep him from slipping off of me. Cause you know, we're all kind of sweaty and yeah. And my uh, mom was looking at this mole on my upper thigh and she kept saying, I don't like the look of that. Like that is questionable. You need to go have that looked at. And I, you know, like any working mom would do, blew her off. <laughs> I'm too busy right, going to the dermatologist. Like, whatever. That's that's one more visit I don't have. I can't deal with. Forget it. And she nagged me for weeks. And so finally, I just to get her to shut up already, right? I went to mm-hmm. her stinking dermatologist. Um, and when I went to the dermatologist, they immediately did... Um, a biopsy, which is a fancy word for it. They sliced off a little nugget of skin and um, said that they would, you know, see what was going on. And um, sure enough, uh, it was crazy. Four days later, they called to say it was melanoma and that whatever I had going on in my life needed, they would make an appointment for me to visit with a general surgeon. And whenever that appointment was, they don't care what was on my schedule. This was more important. And that I needed to stop everything, go to the surgical consultation. And um, within, I think that call was on a Tuesday. And by Friday, I was having my surgery. Wow. So, yeah. And that was, so that was my very first experience with cancer. And um, it was so wackadoo. I think all my subsequent cancers weren't nearly so urgent, um, but melanoma is a very fast growing cancer. And so no one wanted to mess around, and especially given my age and health, they were just trying to knock it out as quickly as possible. And so I had the surgery on a Friday and um, they, the big question was whether it had spread. And if it had spread to the lymph nodes, then I would have had maybe a year to live. And if it hadn't, no biggie, just for more sunscreen. Like those are some pretty extreme options. Exactly. <laughs> like Very options. extreme. Yeah, it was crazy. And so it was, um, and I, I talk a lot about um, the importance of, you know, your support system and your network. And I was unbelievably lucky. I mean, I'm in a very stable, loving marriage. And on top of that, I, my parents are close by. And at the time my dad was still working and he was on this really long-term assignment in China. And my mom hadn't seen him for a month and she was really excited about, she was planning a trip to go visit him. And when I got that diagnosis on Tuesday, after I called my husband, I called my mom to say, you're not going to believe this. And she was literally, she had just boarded the airplane for her trip to China. And this is post 9-11. And she turned to the stewardess and said, I've got to get off this plane. And I don't know how she did it. And she got her luggage too, right? <laughs> she, they wow. Got, they, that's they not very typical. Yeah. 
yeah, it was, I mean, I don't know what she did. She doesn't even remember. Like, it's just all a blur. Right. But uh, yeah, she got off the plane. And so she was with us. And I will say that was a very stressful weekend, right? Because you're waiting for the call Monday to say whether you're going to live or die. Right. And, um, and I was fine. I hadn't spread the lymph nodes. We got it soon enough. My mom gets all sorts of credit for a nagging like crazy, you know, to get me to go to the dermatologist and then be kind of keeping, keeping us sane that weekend when there's nothing to talk about until you know, there's something to talk about. Right. And right. So just elephant in the room that, that felt extreme. So I was really grateful. I was really lucky. So is there any ongoing treatment for that cancer? Did uh, just once it's out, then it's out. Once it's out, it's out. I mean, isn't that crazy? Like it that just, is to have your whole life turned upside down in the space of a week and then being told, all right, go back to normal. That's <laughs> nuts. So then what was nuts, the next yeah. cancer? So yeah, 11 months later, I went in for an annual mammogram. I started my mammograms a little younger because like you heard my mother had breast cancer. So I had to start younger and um, they didn't like something in my bio, in my mammogram. So they had to do a biopsy. What was so funny is I went in for the biopsy and um, in any breast patient will soon learn, you know, your boobs just, everyone's got their hands on. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. the surgeon is feeling the lumps or feeling for the lump in my breast, which I couldn't feel because it was so small. And her finger started traveling up towards my neck and she found um, a lump in my neck that she didn't like. And so she asked, she ordered a second biopsy for the neck as well as the breast. And at the time, and that that time the breast was nothing. It was just, you know, atypical cells or something non-specific, but um, in my um, neck, it was thyroid cancer. And so 11 months after the first one, I had thyroid cancer and I was like, okay, so is my surgery on Thursday? Like waiting, you know, for the level of urgency, but thyroid cancer is the exact opposite of melanoma. It's a very slow moving cancer. And they, um, the doctor said, you know, you know, you've got plenty of time. Let's just, we want you to go do all these different kinds of labs first and you have to get set up in an endocrinology practice. And, you know, there, here's this 25 things that you have to do before your surgery and then we'll get it scheduled. So it wasn't until about maybe two months later that I had that surgery. Interesting. And in some ways, you know, at the time, I was so stressed. I hated the idea that I was walking around with cancer and it, and it wasn't coming out. But now in retrospect, after having all these experiences, it's a gift, right? Like you have time to plan. Like I didn't have to just drop all of my work projects at once and, and all of a sudden look for childcare. Like, I mean, all of those things you have time to kind of plan for, think about, get organized for, um, especially when, you know, you are a full-time working parent. It's not easy to just drop out of your world for an unknown amount of time. So, um, that that was, so that one was really tough because again, it was supposed to be this, it's this very standard treatment where they remove the thyroid and then, um, you do something called radioactive iodine treatment, which is this other crazy thing. And, um, and it, you know, I was told plan for being out of work for a couple of days and you know, you'll be fine. No big deal. And, um, I, and one of those lucky people, I fell into this teeny, teeny, tiny category of patients to this happens to 2% of patients that tells you how small it is, where I had a crazy side effect, uh, where when they removed my thyroid, um, it damaged the hypoparathyroid glands, which are the hypoparathyroid just means they're next to the thyroid. Mm-hmm. And so um, I became hypoparathyroid, but no one knew that until I started feeling going into hypocalcemic shock which means that your fingers and your lips are numb. Um, And so when I went home, they said, Hey, if you have any of these symptoms, including like numbness and fingers or 
or lips, you know, give us a call. So um, I called the doctor and they said, okay, we'll just take a couple of Tums. They have a lot of calcium in them. They'll make you feel better. And so they said, but you know, if you don't feel better in another hour or two, give us a call. So two hours later, call back and they're like, I'm still feeling really numb. And now it's kind of all in my face. And the gal was like, how many times have you had? And I'm like, I have it to 12. And she's like, okay, you need to go to the ER. <laughs> and um, they checked me in and gave me IV calcium. Um, my body was going into hypoglycemic shock and things that you learn uh, through this. I'm not a doctor <laughs> should mention. I have no medical training <laughs> whatsoever other than having been a pin cushion for many other medical experts Right, um, is that um, you need calcium for muscle function. So this is actually why you see like a lot of bodybuilders and weight builders eat, drink lots of milk and dairy and eat a lot of calcium and proteins because you need it for all that extra muscle. And so when you don't have um, parathyroid hormones in your body, then what happens is your muscles stop working and your heart is a muscle. So eventually it starts in your extremities and then works its way into your body. And then it gets to your heart and your heart stops moving and you die. So I was in the hospital for two weeks and while they tried to figure out a medical and over-the-counter medical therapy that would get me off of an IV of calcium that would keep me from going into hypocalcemic shock. And um, that was not fun. I would not recommend it. Um, it was talk about disruptive to my family and my life. I was very, very sick. Um, and it took me a really long time to recover from that. Eventually I got onto um, a better drug therapy, but I really struggled um, with all sorts of side effects from the different drugs that were trying to keep my calcium in check. And um, I complained to my endocrinologist regularly about how fatigued I felt and how tired I was all the time and, and how I wasn't even this tired when my kids weren't sleeping through the night. Like I knew that there was something wrong. I was so tired. And he's like, you're a working mom. Working moms are always tired. And yeah, something's wrong. And that's when I decided, you know, maybe, maybe I'm going to find another endocrinologist. I, of course, wasn't brave enough to say that to his face, but I walked out of the, that appointment. I didn't make a follow-up, schedule a follow-up, and I found another endocrinologist. And in the meantime, I um, visited with uh, this crazy doctor woman, and she uh, she's an MD, but she was one of these people that was really on the cutting edge of various kinds of therapies. And so when like people who come to her suffering from migraines and she was one of the first people to use Botox in the back of the head to numb, I guess, I don't know exactly what, because I don't suffer from migraines, but to numb some kind of nerve that keeps your, you from going, having those migraines. And so I went to her and a friend recommended her and it was like, why not? And, um, and she said that my labs looked like somebody that was suffering from um, celiac and that I should drop gluten. And in six weeks, I killed gluten from my diet. I changed and I got to a new endocrinologist. He changed up some of my meds and the combination of the two, I woke up like I felt better and I started jogging and I started running. And within a year, I ran a half marathon and I felt better. You know, I kind of, I got my life back together, but that was a rough, that was a tough year. And I will say that those two, you know, that combination, right. Of like, understanding the value of having a little time to plan also understanding the value of advocating for yourself. Right. And, right. And, and saying, if I think something's wrong, something is wrong. Don't let people, you know, gaslight you into thinking that you're fine. My labs were fine, but it turns out that my body for whatever reason needs to err on the higher side of whatever this calcium rating is. And so, um, yeah, I, I learned. 
And well, I think that's something that you learn when you go through medical diagnosis or have loved ones that go through medical diagnosis is that power of advocating for yourself and knowing that doctors aren't always right and they're not God. And you can say, I don't agree, or this isn't working for me, or I don't feel good. And we don't, we get intimidated by the system, right? Instead of saying, so hey, much. I so I much. can say what I think here. And I think that, you know, I, again, I'm not a statistician, I don't study this, but I feel like I've read even that women of color end up getting a more raw end of the deal. You can't see me on this podcast, but I'm very white <laughs> Aryan looking, mm-hmm. but the, and so I can only imagine how much worse it is for mm-hmm. people that don't look like me. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind. Like, yeah, I think that what I continue to learn through my whole process is that medicine is as much art as science. So don't get me wrong. I am a very big believer in, you know, actual drugs and therapy and surgery. I'm not suggesting go get, you know, a, a I think Christy, uh, there's a, Christy, what is it? Summers, uh, the gal that was on three's company. Anyway, she, she's out there. Suzanne Summers. Suzanne Summers. Yes. Suzanne Summers talks about coffee colonics and how they solved her breast cancer. And I don't subscribe to that level of bananas crazy, but the, uh, but I do think that there is room for conversation and mm-hmm. the best medical practitioners that I've worked with are those that really listen and are open to a conversation and don't and just aren't dictators, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you may, and I do think there are people that prefer to just be dictated to, but that's not my personality. It's not who I am. Right. Right. So once you got through the radioactive treatment, was there any additional uh, chemo or radiation or anything? Funny is I chose not to do the radioactive iodine treatment. And it was a real, at the time, again, it was a very, um, controversial decision, but I had just been through hell and back, right. Because of all of the, because of this 2% chance of having becoming hypoparathyroid. Um, and when I looked into radioactive iodine treatment, there's a 5% chance of, um, side effects, the most common side effect being you lose your salivary glands, which means that you're constantly drinking. Like you're always, always thirsty. You, you just have no saliva. Mm. Can you imagine? And, and there's no, treatment for that. Like you just drink a lot of water. Like there's no, there's no surgery. There's no nothing. Once you lose your salivary glands, they're gone forever. And so, um, that 5% was really scary. And I said, okay, well, what are the odds of my thyroid cancer recurring now that I've had a thyroidectomy? And it was 2%. I was like, well, there's a lower odds of my thyroid recurring than me losing my salivary glands. I'm good. Not going to do it. Um, and man, was that controversial. And now more and more people are seeing that it's not hundred percent necessary. I think, again, this is another thing that I'm seeing is that a lot of times people, their first cancer, and I don't mean to be dismissive because most people only do have one cancer, but when you have cancer the first time, the first thing you think about is, oh my gosh, I don't want this to ever happen to me again. I'll do absolutely anything. I'll put my help, my body through whatever it is to avoid this in the future. And I think after my second cancer, I started realizing, well, you know, I'm good. I don't, I, right. I can live with a 2% chance of recurrence. I, 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 that makes me more comfortable than a 5% chance of side effects. Right. So, so I walked away from it and I mean, I've been, I think that at this point I'd have to go back and look at the data, but it's been more than 10 years since I've had thyroid cancer. So I feel like I'm, I'm good. The odds of recurrence are probably much lower you know, now. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. So then the third cancer. Third cancer. So third cancer. Now I'm besties with my um, with my dermatologist, and I go every 
six months and and it's this very humbling experience where you strip completely naked and they check every inch of your skin uh, for anything that might be problematic. And they found this little nudge on the top of my nose that was problematic and she took it, biopsied it, and it turned out it was basal cell, which is great because it's a very slow moving cancer. So now I've learned, right? I've learned A, that doctors aren't gods and B, I got some time. This is a slow moving cancer. I have to have it removed, but I can think about what I want to do. So the first thing I did is you have to consult with a plastic surgeon because the nudge was just large enough that it was going to require them to remove a chunk of skin from my face. And um, again, things you can't see in a podcast, but I'm very freckled. I have my, I look like I'm not Irish, but I look like I am. And I have lots and lots of freckles. And so what's normal for people that have beautiful skin like yours, Jill, is they might just take a little chunk of skin from your, where you have kind of more even skin tone all over your upper body. They'll take a little chunk of skin from your neck and relocate it to your nose. But they couldn't do that for me because of the freckle pattern. Like you just can't match that. That would be, Mm -hmm. I would look weird. Um, And so then it became a question of how do you close the hole in my nose and the top of my nose with skin so that I look like a human. And, um, and so the first plastic surgeon uh, said, okay, well, what we do in these cases is we cut from the inside. So I'm pointing to like, you could take your finger and put it in the inside uh, between the top of your nose and your, and your uh, inner eye. And we're going to cut all along the chin line, all the way down to your, um, the edge of your mouth. And then we'll use that, um, that cut will allow us to cover, you know, move the skin over to cover the the cut on the nose and said, so will I be scarred? Yes. Then I'm signing up to have a scar, like seriously, like all the way down to your mouth, all the way down to my mouth. And I thought, well, is there another option? And Nope. This is what I do. And it's called a blah, blah, blah procedure. And I, he's like, so when shall I schedule your surgery? I'm like, I don't know. Let me think about it. And so I, again, I learned, right. I learned to advocate for myself. Like, I don't like this guy. He's kind of a jerk and I don't want a scar on my face if there's another alternative. And so let's just see, right. Is there someone else that will do a different surgery? So I start asking questions and, you know, between our friends got referrals to other plastic surgeons and uh, found a plastic surgeon who had a different surgery that now don't get me wrong. It's miserable because it's a two-parter where your first surgery, he goes in and he cuts out this, you know, the infected skin on your nose. And then he leaves your, he sews a bandage onto your face. And then you walk around bandage face for two weeks while the skin loosens. And then you go back for your second surgery. And after the skin is loosened, he's just stretched out enough that he can close up the gap. And then, and he, he does all the surgery all along the, the shadow of your nose so that you can't see the scar. And I was like, oh, that sounds better. Right. Like I, yes, it's miserable yes, to walk around yes. with like, you know, patch face for two weeks. But if that is the, the, the price you have to pay, right. To not have be a scar face the rest of your life, it's totally worth it. Right. So, um, and luckily my insurance covered it. And, and so we went down that path and did that procedure. And again, not urgent. So I could plan when it was convenient for me with our work and personal life and planned it after my son's birthday party, you know, it just right. really right. stuff. But like, I kind of, I was at peace with it and, and don't get me wrong. It was miserable to walk around with a patch on my face, but knowing that that was that two weeks of misery was going to be the price for not being a Scarface the rest of my life was totally worth it. Right. It was much easier to bear. Yes. You know, it was my choice. Um, so all of this learning, right. That was, that, that, so that point it was 2015, my kids were in grade school at that point. Um, and then in 2017 kids in grade school, middle school, um, I, um, 
was diagnosed with breast cancer, just regular, you know, ongoing, my regular mammogram picked it up. And so, um, this time, you know, you learn, you learn, you learn to ask questions and you learn to evaluate your options. And so, um, again, it was caught really early stage one, it was really small. So I interviewed surgeons about what they recommended. I interviewed oncologists about what they, what they recommended. I chose my care team based on the people that to me aligned with my values and people that were willing to engage with me in a conversation about choices. Um, and you know, there was the one, I will not name him. He was a, a, an oncologist at a very prestigious practice here in um, Kansas city. And it was a really big deal to even get in to see him. Lots of strings were pulled to get me in. And, um, he was one of the worst humans I've ever met. I Mm. was, he was just not remotely open to a conversation about treatment options. He dictated what they were. And that was that, um, I, I couldn't help but cry after he left the office and his nurse, like you could tell that she, you could tell immediately that this was not uncommon, that he made lots of people cry and that she felt terrible, right? That this was not the way to treat patients. And I was like, I just, I don't, I'm not going to be pressured into working with this person just because, you know, he's so. They're a big deal. Yeah. I don't, this is not who I want to work with. Um, especially since this is caught early and I have time and I'm going to make my choice. And so I went with the, the care team that I wanted and, um, and I took the least, um, aggressive route, which again was controversial. Um, but I did so thoughtfully, right. Because I asked questions and I asked about recurrence rates, right. So, um, if I do the surgery and the radiation, what are my odds of recurrence? If I do the surgery radiation and, um, the post-treatment, um, hormone therapy, what are my odds of recurrence? Like I, I just went through all these pieces and I wanted the odds for women that, um, had not yet gone through menopause because our bodies are different. Um, Mm -hmm. and I wanted the data separated from the old ladies and the young people, right? What are, and, and lo and behold, there aren't that many studies that only look at lifespan of younger women when they're diagnosed because a, it's less common. So they only started studying them 10 or 15 years ago. And they like to have 20 years of data to call a study truly medically sufficient. But when I pushed to get that data, even the 10 year um, numbers looked really good to do a less invasive procedure. And I, and because I was working with doctors that were more open-minded and at least open to conversation, they supported my decisions. There wasn't pushback. Um, so I had such a different experience when I was going through breast cancer treatments. Um, the one piece that I will say was really difficult when I was going through radiation treatment is because I was so young and so healthy and they're so used to seeing, I think much older and more feeble people. Um, they kept saying, oh my gosh, you're so young. You're so healthy. You run 20 miles a week. Like you're going to be fine. You're, you're just make your appointments first thing in the morning and go into your office. You're going to walk through this piece of cake. And so I was just really arrogant, right? I thought that I was going to go in and have all my radiation treatments and still be able to maintain my very busy life. And the only difference was that instead of getting into the office at eight, I was getting in at nine. Like it was really a big deal. And, uh, and I was not prepared for how sick I was going to be. And my skin did not react well. I got, I was so burned that chunks of skin started falling off. They had to pause treatment while I healed. Um, I was, I had terrible fatigue. I was nauseous all the time. Like it was just, it was a slog. Um, so that was difficult. And in, in that same time, you know, people are bringing us lasagnas and I got so many pink things like kicking cancer, 
mm-hmm. um, breast cancer survivor tote bags and t-shirts and hats with the pink ribbons on them. And really like, I really wanted was an ice pack that wouldn't leak through my clothes. I really mm-hmm. needed like an, a de- you, know, you have to use aluminum for deodorant and I'm a lifelong secret user. It has aluminum in it. I still use it because I think it actually works and smells good, but I needed a, an aluminum free deodorant that would actually help with perspiration and not smell terrible. And so, and I'm unbelievably lucky. I'm so privileged, right? Because I'm in a, I was able to go to Amazon or go to the web or go to Whole Foods. I spent $250 on aluminum free deodorants to find one that I thought was usable and okay. Other women can't do that, right? I mean, right. That's, I, I'm unbelievably lucky. I ordered all sorts of, I started going down the wormhole on how to find, like they, all they will give you in the hospital when you're going through radiation is aquaphor, which is like basically Vaseline. It's gross. And it doesn't work. Or at least for me, it had no healing. All it was, was just sticky and wet. It didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And I was in so much pain. Um, and so I wanted something to handle my pain. And so they're writing the prescriptions for a Vicodin, which would completely knock me out. And I didn't want to become, you know, I'm worried about a habit. And so I, was also looking down the rabbit hole for some kind of, you know, homeopathic painkillers that's topical, right? And I found these really interesting, like medical journal articles about the use of calendula oil in the treatment for burn victims. And it's really hard. Pain management studies are really hard, right? Because what I might rate on a scale of one to 10 as a as a pain of an eight, you might say as a five based on your tolerance, right? right? So these studies are really, really hard and very subjective, but it's certainly pointed to calendula oil being useful. So then I went down the path of looking for a lotion with the highest concentration of calendula oil. It was incredibly expensive. It was $25 for like two ounces. And it was so helpful. It made such a difference. And I thought, and I mean, it wasn't until I was maybe four weeks in that I found this and I started getting some relief. And I thought again, like, where's where's radiationrelief.com? Where does this exist? And that was really, that was the seed for there has to be something better. I have this like real disconnect where I need all of these things that are really hard to find. And um, I'm receiving all of this junk that I really don't want. And right. why can't they be the same thing? And I thought, well, why can't gifting be functional? And that was the the, the seed for the bomb box. That's interesting. You know, you you really are are hitting on something that is larger than cancer, but you're you're hitting on the trying to close the gap between those who have privilege and have access to information, resources, um, you know, choice of healthcare, all of those things, and with those who don't have those options and don't have that privilege. Totally. I mean, I just can't begin. I mean, I I hope it comes out how grateful and how much I acknowledge my privilege, like that, that I was able to do this. Now I can't solve for everyone's cancer experience in terms of doing your research and finding alternatives and, 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 you know, interviewing other doctors that takes time. That takes effort, right. That that's hard. That's not encouraged um, in the medical environment, which is also deeply frustrating, especially as, you know, depending on how limited, you know, various, your health insurance is, but I can at least solve one piece of it, right? Which is the gifting side. I felt like that was something I I could help with. Right. So tell us about the bomb box. What is it about? So um, I I interviewed um, over 500 people 
uh, for your survey. And um, there, the survey went down two paths. One was if you'd previously been diagnosed with cancer and the other was if you had previously gifted someone a gift for cancer. And I asked, especially, you know, so it's slightly different questions, right? Depending on you, whether you'd previously had cancer or not. And so you ask the cancer patients, what, um, here's a, a list of 50 possible items that you might want or need or receive while going through cancer treatment and rate them on a scale of one to five, one being low, no, I don't want this, this is crap. And five being, oh my gosh, yes, that would be great. And it was so fascinating that my experience was so similar to everyone else's. And that when you ask cancer patients what they want and need, um, the top performing items on the list were all functional. Ice packs, medical support pillows, um, lotion, lip balm, right? Things that you use that are useful. Mm -hmm. And the things that they got the lowest scores, the lowest ratings are all what I kind of tag as inspirational. Worry stone, kicking cancer tote bags, kicking cancer coffee mugs you know, things, books of inspirational poetry. I mean, those are all things right. that I see in a lot of cancer care packages. And my research says that no one wants it. What they want are things that are really going to give them immediate aid, like it make them palliative, functional, useful items. Um, Absolutely. So then you know, about, yeah, go ahead. Our, our daughter um, is a cancer survivor and she had cancer when she was two and a half. And, um, you know, you really discover as um, number one advocacy, I'm just thinking of my own journey as you're talking. And I mean, there was a point in, um, in her journey where, you know, a child can't advocate for themselves. And so you see how that, how that advocacy comes into play. And at one point they were um, getting ready to drip in a chemo. And I said, stop. And they said, what? I said, that has to be pushed because it eats the tube on the way through. So you have to push that through a syringe. And they're like, really? I said, stop, just stop until you talk to the doctor. And sure enough, I was right. You know, but I have access to resources. I knew that, you know, and I I really saw that that gap between those who are able to access information and resources and those who those who aren't. But one of the things that I did was I did some writing for um, for patients, pediatric patients and their parents, you know, what is useful and what isn't. And it's so important. Once you live that firsthand experience, you really see what things make a difference and what things are really, um, frivolous and yeah, just frivolous. No, and it's hard too, because it's hard to complain about the frivolous elements because it's so well-meaning, right? It's, it's well-intended. It's so well-intended. And and I, so I don't want to poo-poo it, right? Because it, everyone wants to help, but they don't know how. So I think what you see a lot of is food, flowers, and, and cash. And, mm-hmm. um, and again, so I, I think that all of those things are helpful on some level, but I just felt like my research confirmed that what people want and need are the non-prescription tools that you need to, to monkey through those treatments. Cause all treatments stink. They all stink. Surgery stinks. There's no one that's going to say surgery is just lovely and super fun. <laughs> it's right. not. I mean, it's necessary. Certainly it's important. It's great. It's life-saving. I mean, all those things are, are true. Um, but it's deeply, deeply difficult. Um, and, and I, and I think that addressing the physical um, having I think that it's a combination of, yes, it's really great to have, um, to receive an ice pack that won't leak through your clothes. And that's, you know, and it's small and that, um, you can tuck under your arm and and walk around with, and that's 
functionally really great to have. But I think what's equally great is to have someone give you something that says, here are things that I, I, I believe you must be suffering from and being kind of seen and heard, right? Understanding that very validating. They get it, right? That that this is hard and I'm hurting. And um, and I so I think that it's a double whammy, right? It, and I think that and when you when people gift you that, you know, kicking cancer tote bag, it's that's what they're hoping for, right? They want to be seen, value, heard, acknowledge, they want to help, but um but its functionality is not as good as some of the other things. So yeah. what kind of things do you, do you um, promote and, and sell in the bomb box? Give me some examples. Yeah, well, we have, we have a couple different options. Um, you can shop by treatment. So um, right now we have a pretty strong focus on breast cancer because that is the most common cancer. Um, we're hoping to expand shortly. I will tell you initial research sh- shows that, the differences between what you need for radio radiation while undergoing breast cancer radiation versus prostate radiation are pretty similar. Um, so it might just be honestly a website redesign as opposed to a product change. But mm-hmm. um, but the the reality is, um, you know, you can, treatment being surgery versus chemotherapy versus radiation. And so we have different combinations of care packages and a variety of price points. Right. So on understanding that not everyone can afford our, you know, ultimate cancer care package. That's $189, which is super awesome and has so much great stuff in it, but that's a lot of money. And so we also have $40 boxes that, you know, little, a a quick and dirty mixing nausea or a quick and dirty, um, you know, lumpectomy care package. So those things that are a little bit um, smaller, but no less necessary and, and great to receive. So we do both. That is amazing. How are you getting the word out to uh, people who are suffering? I mean, besides things like this, what additionally are you doing to kind of let people know that you exist? Oh, it's hard. It's hard. We're it is hard. And it's expensive. And, um, you know, we, we do um, some, we do a fair amount of advertising. It's all digital right now. Um, so Facebook, um, you know, Google, the, the standard direct marketing. Um, we do a lot of, we try to do PR. So when we see opportunities to share our story with different media outlets, we do, we were covered by um, Medium and um, Thrive and NBC and uh, Yahoo News. And we had a great story in USA Today, which was pretty great. Um, so I think that the PR has certainly been the most That's great. Most valuable. Um, and, and interviews like this, you know. That's awesome. Well, I... I really love that um, your message is to choose happy and be positive and that you have taken what you've suffered through and made it into something that can help others. I think that is the ultimate human experience, is it not? To take to take our suffering and our hardship and to turn it into something that can be beneficial to others. Yeah. I, well, I, what's the point, right, of having mm-hmm. had this experience if I can't? I don't know, turn it around. And I do think that it's selfish of me. I feel like I feel grateful that I'm able to do it. So, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Liz, tell us again, spell it out, how we can find, how we can find this. It's the bombbox.com, T-H-E-B-A-L-M-B-O-X.com. Awesome. Well, hey, it has been a privilege to talk to you and um, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, sharing the power of of healing and, and sharing with others. Thank you for having me. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.Author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.Author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.